Hutchins say stuff like that. <laughs> Didn't realize that was going to be on there. All right, let's uh, get started this morning. And um, I have included on the old sort of outline thing some new information. So it'll be sort of, it'll appear as a, as a whole. Um, and we're going to, we've been talking about um, how God used the Roman Empire and how he's going to use many different things. What is something that he's used from the empire so far? Roads, right? And he's going to use them more. The Pax Romana, right? The peace of Rome. Uh, what else? What's something else that he's going to use? There's one thing that he's going to use, that God is going to use Rome, that we're going to talk about today that we haven't talked about yet. So I guess what we'll do is, and he's used... Um, He's sort of using the power of Rome and the culture of Greece, which has kind of come together in a confluence. I guess that's redundant. Um, but, and we're going to see the Greek language, which is going to be the English of the day. Uh, he's going to use that also. So one of the other ways he's going to do this, he's, he used Caesar Augustus to draw Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy, and certainly the Romans... Uh, aren't interested in fulfilling Hebrew prophecy, right? Um, uh, we're going to see the slaughter of the innocents, the young babies that Herod killed. That's a fulfillment of prophecy. Um, and so we're going to, let's move now. Um, Augustus will die in 14 AD, and the guy who supersedes him is a guy named Tiberius. Um, the for all the peace of Rome, for all the things that we get from Rome, uh, the governance and things like that, the transitions of power were not very peaceful. They tended to be very sort of bloody sort of occasions and stuff. And the one for uh, Tiberius, however, isn't, isn't that, I hate to say it, isn't that bad, but I mean, it, it was, wasn't awesome. So anyway, Tiberius is going to be Caesar when Christ is crucified. And as Christ stands before Pilate, and I like the way that the Lord has used historical figures to kind of put, put the incarnation in time. We know when Pilate reigned. I told you one of the things with Quirinius, who is the governor of Syria, I told you one of the sort of the uh, controversies that was involved in that. That's, it, it's in the process of being sort of ironed out as probably as we speak. And so uh, we see Pilate is going to do something else. When the charge, of, uh, charge against Jesus is nailed to the top of the cross, what's the charge? King of the Jews, right? Jesus is essentially crucified from the Romans' perspective for sedition. Because remember, I told you that uh, the emperor is uh, sort of the embodiment of the empire. And to not give him his due would be essentially to create or commit treason. What do the Jews tell? What do the Jews tell Pilate when they put the sign, when he puts the sign on the cross? Yeah, it's put on there, he said he was the king of the Jews. And so you've seen... Um, in the, in, the, in the artwork and other things, the letters I-N-R-I. 
Jesus Nazarenus Rex Judeorum, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And what does Pilate tell him? What I have, this is one of my, my favorite lines in history. What I have written, I have written. And it's at that point that even the Roman Empire declares Jesus king of the Jews. And I think that's just awesome. It's like, you didn't see that coming, did you? And so um, Rome then is uh, powerless uh, to actually stop the resurrection. When God sends the angels down, the, the guard is just paralyzed with terror, right? So, and so what do the Jews tell, what do the, you know, the Romans, they go, I'll just go on because we don't have enough time. All right, so the Romans, uh, they're just terrorized, they're, you know, and so um, the Jews come to the Romans and go, well, just tell them you fell asleep. Now, are the Roman soldiers going to have a problem telling the governor, well, we fell asleep on guard duty? Yeah, that was, that, was, uh, that was punishable by death, right? So, they, yeah, but if, if something happens, if the governor, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll make sure you don't get in trouble. But Rome couldn't stop it. They couldn't stop it. And so we see that even the, meth, the method of Christ's crucifixion and the things about the crucifixion are prophesied hundreds of years before this even starts. Right, it, it's, it's going to show this wasn't really around very much crucifixion, not in this way at least, f- when it was written in the Psalms. There was some things like that. And we see from Psalm 22, they shoot out the lip. They wag their heads. They say, let him take you off the cross, essentially is what, what this says, right? Let him who you followed, let him get you off the cross. And that's the way it says it in Psalm 22 is he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. And we're going to see the people at the foot of the cross saying that very thing. It's the very thing. Uh, Later on, he's going to say, and this is kind of interesting because Psalm 22 doesn't only give us this, um, this picture of what crucifixion looks like. It gives us a picture of a little bit of like what it feels like. I am poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart, like wax, has melted within me. Behold, you've pierced my hands and my feet, and for my raiment they cast lots. And you have laid me in the dust of death. This is also prophetically um, fulfilled um, through the Romans. Well, the persecution of Christians is going to start, and it's not only because uh, they won't worship Caesar, depending on whether or not Caesar wants to be worshipped. It's also because the Christians are growing very fast, and this always makes, large groups always make political entities very concerned and very nervous. Um, And there will be no real sort of systematic persecution of Christians until really sort of after Nero who is going to be in the 50s and 60s A.D. He dies in A.D. 68. Um, Nero, as you've probably heard, um, is going to be responsible for the martyrdoms of Peter and Paul. Uh, He has decided 
at, at one point to uh, light the grounds of his uh, palace and things by dipping uh, Christians in pits and hanging them on, on poles and lighting them and for just pure sadistic pleasure uh, murdering them. Um, the, uh, the actual persecution of Christians um, is going to last for about 250 years. It'll be over um, in the late third century. It's going to end pretty much with a guy named Diocletian, who we'll just mention briefly here in a little bit. Um, let's see. All right. Here's another thing that the Lord is going to use to uh, further his gospel. In AD 70, Titus, a guy named Titus, who is the son of the then emperor Vespasian, uh, is going to lay siege and sack Jerusalem. And when he sacks Jerusalem, he's taking the gold from the temple. He's driving the Jews out because the Jews from time to time are going to be involved in uprisings and revolts and things like this. And so he's going to go in. He's going to take all this stuff out. He's going to drive the Jews out. They think they look at the Christians as sort of a sect of Judaism. They're going to drive them out too. And as a here's what's happening with the church. This is a, like a rabbit trail. This is not a rabbit trail. This is like saying what I should have said before. Uh, the Christians were sort of forming this, this community, but it was sort of staying in Jerusalem. And the Lord is going to use the Roman Empire yet again to drive them out. And he drives them out, and they get to use the roads, and they get to use the benefits of the Pax Romana. Remember, uh, because of the Principate, which is something that Augustus set up, which is a re, sort of reorganization of the government of Rome. It's a, it's a, uh, they've, they've redone a lot of the laws and the judicial system. And it has, it has made Rome a relatively peaceful place. And not only Rome, but the empires on the other side of the Roman Empire are also experiencing uh, relative peace. So now the gospel can go out. The roads are relatively safe. The places where the gospel is going is relatively peaceful. And it's just like the perfect storm, if you will, for the, the presentation of the gospel. Um, in, the, uh, in the time of the persecutions, um, there are many accounts. Oh, incidentally, if you have the opportunity, there's a book uh, called Fox's Book of Martyrs. I've, I've included the name on this in here. And this book is interesting because they continue to update it because the martyrs for the church are continuing. They, they didn't just like end back then. But it talks about, um, it's been a while since I've read it, but it's, it'll talk about the persecution, what they did, under whom it was uh, carried out. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a real encouragement to us to go, you know what, these people it really mattered to. But during a lot of these persecutions, many of the Christians, because they thought it would be an honor to be crucified for Christ or be torn asunder by animals in the Colosseum or how whatever the method of death was going to be, they would run to it. They would line up. All right, I want to be next. 
I mean, it was, it was, that's almost counterintuitive to us, but they would still do this because they felt that it was such an honor to be able to shed blood for the gospel. Um, and I would say that that's very interesting. Um, a little bit later on, and we're going to see now that I've got a list here of some, um, of some um, emperors who were particularly known for their persecutions of the Christians. We talked about Nero, Vespasian, and essentially if the guy's name begins with a D, He's one of those guys. I wasn't kind of part of the plan, but uh, Domitian, Marcus Aurelius, Decius, Valerian, Diocletian, those guys, they were all. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about those here in a second. And, but we're, gonna, we're talking like tens of thousands of Christians over the course of that 250 years are going to die. Um, it's, it's also kind of around this time that there are a group of emperors where the Julio-Claudians were, were just really messed up. There was a number of psychopaths leading this thing. And, the, um, and what uh, Augustus set up was made Rome so stable that even significant military victories and significant, uh, significantly bad rulers didn't destroy the foundation and the fabric of this. And sort of toward the end of the Pax Romana, there are going to be five emperors that history calls the five good emperors. A guy named Nerva, Trajan, Hadrian, Antoninus, Pius, and a guy named Marcus Aurelius. So how many saw uh, Gladiator, the movie Gladiator? You remember who Marcus Aurelius was? He's the kindly old gentleman that has befriended Maximus. Uh, he's, there's some question as to whether he just straight up died or whether he was poisoned. That was a big thing. They poisoned a lot of these guys. Um, um, anyway, Marcus Aurelius, if you were a Roman citizen, these five guys were the guys you wanted to have rule in the place. These guys were amazing. They were very stable. They, were, they, did not, they weren't given to things like Nero and these other guys were. But if you were a Christian under Marcus Aurelius, you wanted to be somewhere else because he is going to go after them very hard. Other guys like Trajan and Hadrian, while what Hadrian or what Tra there's a there's some uh, there's some writings extant from uh, people who had talked with these guys. And what Trajan is going to say is like, look, don't hunt them out, meaning the Christians. But if uh, something happens and they sort of flaunt this, then, then get them. And that's the way, that's sort of the way Hadrian kind of approached it also. Those two in the middle, excuse me, those two in the middle. Um, what else did I want to mention on those guys? Oh. Yeah, if I have, we have a little time, I'll tell you a little something about Nero. What a nice guy this guy was. Um, well, as, as the empire proceeds, and so now we're about 186 A.D., right, after Marcus Aurelius dies. I think that's when he dies. Um, the peace of Rome begins to sort of come apart. And as it normally does, 
the transitions of power are very bloody. It remains to be seen exactly who's going to be emperor, but there's this there's usually five to 12 years of, of just real um, um, discord and murder and you know all those kinds of things on these uh, at this point. And we see we go into the third century are we with are um, we end with the third century with a guy named Diocletian. And Diocletian, oh let me back up one. The, the Emperor Decius is also one of the guys who's going after Christians. And many people uh, thought, because of what, how he did things, that when St. John wrote the Apocalypse, that, they, that this was almost prophetic about the guy, the beast, and all this, about the way the Christians were treated and the, and the, the way Rome... Or, uh, the way John characterizes it through Revelation, uh, that this was the guy they were writing about. Um, there's going to be a guy come a little later, Diocletian, who is going to try to, in his own words, eradicate Christianity. Uh, some of them just really went after him, and it's going to be, uh, they don't even know how many people he killed. Uh, but, as God would have it, uh, Diocletian is going to get sick, and he's going to retire to his uh, farm. We say farm. This wouldn't look like a farm that we knew. This is like, it's got a, like a palace on it. It's like in what is now Romania. <coughs> Excuse me, you can now, you can visit this place. Um, and he will retire to raise cabbages. <laughs> it's like, okay, whatever you got to do. But, but then there's a little bit of a... There's a, a little bit of a problem here with, you know, again, who's going to be the guy. Turns out a guy named Constantine is going to show up on the scene. Uh, Constantine's father, uh, I believe his wife, were actually believers. Constantine at this point is not. Uh, in 312 AD, Constantine is getting ready. I mean, there are things starting to come apart in his administration. He is, he is looking at uh, warfare, which amounts to essentially almost civil war, uh, which actually it is, um, impending. He decides he wants to appeal to the gods to say, you know, help me, what do I do, that kind of thing. And what he does is he goes back in his mind and he goes, well, what god... What God of all these people tended to be the one people could trust? It wasn't going to be capricious. It wasn't going to whatever. And so he goes, oh, my father prayed to this, the God of the Hebrews and the Christians. So he prays, and he asked him for help, and um, he has a vision. And as he looks into the clouds, he said he saw this this flaming vision, and it's, most people say at the time, it's a cross. And he's, he's undone. And later on, I don't know if it's that night or in the very near future, Jesus appears to him in a dream and, and shows him that sign again, and he says, in this sign, conquer. Conquer. 
and so there's this the the battle. What what he, what he says, and so what what uh, excuse me, let me back up one. What he does is he makes a standard, right? And on this standard, he's going to take this into battle. And out of a spear, he's going to encase it sort of in gold. He's going to put a crossbeam at the top of the spear. And he's going to put the name of Christ, or rather the monogram of Christ, on the top. Because a lot of times um, in Greek and in Roman letters, if you ever see like a painting that's got two two letters here and two letters here, and there's a line over each of the letters, it means it's an abbreviation of some kind. Well, what he's going to do, he's going to put on this, uh, the, above this crossbeam, two Greek letters, the chi and the rho. To us, it looks like, and I put here, it looks like a PX, right? It's not, the X comes first. <laughs> But they are the first two letters in the Greek word Christos, which is different from Christos. It's Christos, which means the Christ. And that's what those two letters, when you see those in um, ecclesiastic sorts of things, that's, where it, where, that's what it means. Um, historians aren't exactly sure this was unknown at the time. But it is something that from then on it got used. Uh, uh, Constantine wins the Battle of Milvian Bridge very handily so that the next year in A.D. 313, he's going to be a signatory to something called the Edict of Milan. And the Edict of Milan will then officially make Christianity a legal religion. Uh, by the end of uh, the next century, uh, by the end of that century, rather, a guy, there's another emperor, his name is Theodosius I, and he will actually make Christianity the state religion of the Roman Empire. And so we see this going from just sort of, it's not a thing, to persecution, to now it's the thing. And it's going to be because, oh, I didn't say this. I forgot to say this. All right, there's, there was an expression that talked about the martyrdom of Christians. And this martyrdom of Christians, it said that the blood of the martyrs, Bill, is the seed of the church. And it's so interesting how when God wants to like get our attention and the persecution goes up, the church becomes purer because only those who are real believers are going to like follow that. And it's like, we don't like that very much, uh, but it's what makes the church grow. Um, so from then on, we begin to see things like um, uh, governances, the governments and things of uh, Rome begin to behead. From then, from that point forward, only one emperor ever disavowed uh, Christ in a formal way. I think his name was Julian the Apostate. <laughs> but the other ones will all name the name of Christ as theirs, whether they truly believed it. Many of them were Arian, and many of them just did it for political reasons, but they never again go after the Christians. And so now, it's why in the, 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 
the uh, teaching of uh, Western civilization is essentially the history of the church and the way it gets into the way it gets into Europe and the way it's uh, it's <coughs> excuse me used to train and to teach and to govern and we get this system of uh, an, an, an Episcopal type system of governance and for all its warts and everything else it is it is the church and that's one of the reasons why it's so important there um, by this time um, Rome has been divided essentially into two large kingdoms an eastern and a western empire uh, the western empire uh, will fall in 476 AD the eastern half which, we will, which will become known as Byzantium, um, will have a decidedly Greek sort of overlay to it, which won't fall until 1453 or 35. I get those backwards all the time. And it's going to fall to the Muslim Ottoman Empire, who's been going after the city of Constantinople for a long time, for hundreds of years, and it finally falls uh, in the mid-15th century. Um, what do I also want to go here? All right, so here's, here's what we've kind of looked at. We've seen how God is going to use the roads. He's going to use the Pax Romana. He's going to use biblical history. He's going to use the, the other em, the empires around. He's going to use all this stuff to get his gospel where, it needs, where he thinks it needs to be. And so uh, had it not been for this, uh, it might have been, uh, well, no, nah, I can't even go there. I won't even say that. That'd be stupid. Um, even the persecution uh, that Rome foisted upon the Christians in there, was used to further the gospel. We look at things like, you recall the, the uh, Joseph, you know, what, what he meant for evil, God meant for good. Uh, we just don't have an idea sometimes of how God decides to work on these things, but he does. Um, and uh, we then see a very strong and powerful church emerge in, um, in, um, in Europe. And uh, there's a lot of neat things. At some point, it would be really cool to talk about the cathedrals and the big churches and what they mean and why they were made the way they were made. Uh, we get very comfortable with ideas of, you know, well, we ought to feel really comfortable in church. And I kind of feel like, you know, I think you should feel a little uncomfortable because you're getting ready to meet with the God of this universe who created ex nihilo, who spoke, there was nothing, and he did. We ought to feel just a little, I don't know, just a little on our edges of our seats a little bit. Well, let's talk. I've got a few things to say about some of the Jewish groups. How are we doing on time? All right, we've got two hours left, so we've got to get this. Um, all right. So... Um, there, there were sort of three uh, major groups of, of, um, of sects of Judaism. I don't know if sect is the right word. Would you call it a sect? It's not really a sect. It's more like a something within. The Essenes would be sort of a sect, but the Sadducees and the Pharisees uh, were really not so much. All right, so we always hear about the Sadducees. Um, this is a group 
who used as its official canon the Pentateuch, essentially only the Pentateuch. And they used, the way they would sort of interpret this were through priests and things like this. And as a result, uh, at some point, the Pharisees would look back on them and go, uh, you're using these guys to sort of interpret stuff, and that's why you are sort of such a liberal sort of uh, manifestation of Judaism. The other thing is, because of the Pentateuch and, and really significant or obvious sort of references to the afterlife and things like this, they did not believe in uh, sort of the immortality of the soul. They believed... Uh, that you know, you want to get it while you're here. You want to live a good life while you're here, and that was kind of what the purpose was. But they did not believe in a resurrection. Now, interestingly, the Sadducees were the ones. Um, okay, so <clears throat> Caiaphas, y'all heard of Caiaphas, the high priest, right? Annas and Caiaphas. Caiaphas was a Sadducee. The Sadducees tended to be complicit with Rome, and uh, during this period of time. And so they were, you know, kind of wanting to see it a little bit. They didn't, they wanted to, yeah, they kind of wanted to kind of help Rome do their thing. They didn't, they weren't Roman. They didn't want to see Rome persecute the Jews, but they were very much like the Vichy government of France during World War II. Um, and it's, it's why you read about Caiaphas. It's why Caiaphas is involved in some of the, the actions where Christ is concerned and some of the Pharisees don't look at it quite the same way. Uh, there are no existing writings of uh, Sadducees uh, that people know of at this point. Uh, there may be some, but um, I'm not aware of any of them existing. The Pharisees, on the other hand, would look at the, the Old Testament uh, the canon that exists today, and they would see that all as God's word. And they looked at a little different sort of interpretation. They kind of went down along the lines of sort of mosaic um, authority, which is different than just the priest telling you what to do. Uh, they believed in an afterlife. Um, let's see, uh, Paul uh, studied under a guy named Gamaliel. I, I'm glad I got to say that because Sartell couldn't pronounce that word to save his life. I mean, I just wanted to go, but I'm not supposed to be that guy, but I really am that guy. It's like, no, that's not it. But, um, and Gamaliel was a scholar who had studied under the great Hebrew leader Hillel. Um, and, uh, 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 the, the, we see the, Sadducee, uh, the, the Pharisees uh, becoming, they were the more dominant in terms of numbers group. The Sadducees were generally uh, more uh, from the aristocracy, if, if you, or, or at least a, a strata that would correspond to the aristocracy. Um, I'm not saying that the, that the Pharisees were all just like, you know, super common guy like Joe Bag of Donuts or something, but he, they, they just, um, they were more, they had a softer edge to them, if we can say it sort of like this, um, at the, and, and then you have the Essenes, and the, I, I always thought the Essenes were kind of odd because they're, they're, they're a lot more, than, I say odd, that's not right, they were more mystical, about the way they sort of approach things. And it happens to be, they're gonna play a part 
1946, there's a shepherd boy walking on the, on the, on the coast or near the coast of um, the Dead Sea. And no 10-year-old shepherd boy worth his salt is going to look into the side of a cliff and see a hole and not throw a rock in it. And that's what he does. He picks up a rock. They throw this rock into this hole, and he hears pottery break. And now you're going to have to go see what that was because it's like, no, that's just, you know. you got, And that's, where, that's how they find the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Essenes are one of the groups that were, they think, were uh, responsible for having put those up there. However, the, uh, the yeah, no, never mind. Never mind. I was going to talk about that. So, so what we have there is a nearly complete scroll of Isaiah and a bunch of other fragments that were from a thousand years prior to his throwing this in there. The Isaiah scroll is going to do away with or at least shame a lot of uh, contemporary biblical criticism. Well, you know, so-and-so just wrote the book of Isaiah, and he just put in there what he wanted to put in there, because it wasn't really like that a long time ago. Well, we get this scroll that was, that was over a thousand years old, and guess what? It matches what, what is being written these days. So, so, I mean, there was just some neat things with that. At the, um, uh, at the time of um, the sack of Jerusalem, we're going to see the Sadducees, everybody's going to be dispersed. The Sadducees are just never heard from again. The Essenes are never really heard from again. The Pharisees are the, is the group that is going to sort of take Judaism forward, but about the time, it's, it's like around 135 or something like that, uh, there's another revolt. And uh, it's a Jewish revolt. And the Romans are going to really kind of clamp down on this, and it's going to force them out farther into a diaspora that is going to be essentially to this day. And it's at this point that the Pharisees as a group sort of aren't talked about much, but they get the more rabbinic tradition that we, that we see today. And, uh, but the rabbinic tradition and the, and the temples and the things, the Jewish temples and things that are here today, come out of uh, basically the Pharisaic sort of um, tradition. So let me think. How are we doing, timekeeper? Okay, good. Uh, any uh, comments or questions or anything? No? I'm a little disappointed. Oh, yeah. This will be a hard one, right? I know it's going to be. They were gone. Yep. It's at that point that that was the, is that the second temple? That was the second temple that's destroyed. And uh, it's why the rabbinic, one of the reasons why the rabbinic tradition exists like it does today. They don't have priests. They have rabbis. Um, and, yeah, I think is that, I hope that was. All right. Mm-hmm. Where were they? Were they spread all out away from Jerusalem? Were they taken to Rome to be persecuted? It kind of depended. They could be persecuted like in local amphitheaters. Uh, we read a book last summer 
uh, a guy named Ignatius uh, was uh, being carted off to Rome to be uh, part of the games in Rome. And uh, he was going to be martyred. He was martyred in the, in the Colosseum. But they wouldn't know. It kind of depended because they all had you know, theaters in different places. And sometimes the local governors would just take care of it right there. And other times, and I don't know what the conditions were when they said, you know, you got to get this guy. So. This is kind of a question, kind of a comment. Um, you know, I've heard from very conservative so-called, they call themselves evangelicals, whatever that means. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of catch all. Kind of disregard the beginning, you know, the church, the Roman Catholic Church, as being. Yeah, a lot of Protestants you know, think that, was, that the church. That was never the, really the church. That was a political thing. That was a fake vision that he claimed. It's all baloney. And that's just an example of the state taking over the church. And I've always yeah. wondered, where do they get that from? And what, because it seems like history would actually show yeah. what you've just told me. Yeah, I mean, as sort of current-day um, Protestants, I mean, we sort of think that the church began in 1517. So what did the whole church do until Martin Luther came along? Right or you know a lot of these guys and you look at the old writings the church fathers uh, we read a book uh, when we were talking about Ignatius going and it's like we I, it was the apostolic fathers and we I, what did they say right it's like it's like you got Jesus who had a disciple whose name was John who had a disciple whose name was Polycarp right and those guys, the Polycarp thing and Ignatius, those guys are the apostolic fathers. What did they say was most important? How did they interpret what Jesus said? Because they're like two degrees of separation. And we're like, how many now? So that is a lovely topic, probably best suited for another time. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, thank you. Appreciate it. And thanks, lovely timekeeper. I have that effect on people.